Hey guys, and well, this is Jim. Welcome to the Holmes Politicast. Um, we have a lot to talk about today, so I'm going to jump right into it. Uh, we're going to be covering uh, how we got to where we are as far as in re- race relations, and and I'm just going to have to hit the you know hit the just going to have to hit the big spots, I guess, in history because it's going to be hard to boil down 244 years of history into just a few minutes here. But um, one of the things that got me thinking about this was just yesterday, or this week, Senator Virginia Senator Tim Kaine uh, made the comment that slavery wasn't brought to the United States, but we created it, which this is an absolute falsehood. And only someone who has no respect or love for America would say something like that. He claims he's been educated at Harvard, which if I was him, I would sue Harvard and the education department, the history department, because they failed him completely if this is what they're teaching there. Uh, we don't know exactly when the first slaves were brought to the United States. I tried to do some research about this over the weekend. We do know in right before 1700, maybe in the 1690s, there are writings about slaves. Uh, there were some legal cases in which slaves were brought up. So we know that they were already slaves at that point. We do know that there weren't any slaves brought by the Puritans or on the Mayflower. So we're so sometime in between there, slavery came to the United States. Uh, but that was, in my opinion, the original sin that was committed here. And we've been trying to solve and absolve ourselves of that sin for a long time using the government and using other sources to try to make things right. And in many cases, their action or inaction has uh, brought us to where we are today. And so we do know that when the, when the founders, they, they were, it's kind of complicated because the founders had different opinions on slavery. Uh, many of them weren't in love with the institution, but it was a necessary evil. Many of them thought they grew up with it like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, they owned slaves. They never bought slaves. They never purchased them themselves. They inherited them from, uh, well, George Washington's parents died when he was, or his father died when he was relatively young. So he inherited mostly from his older brother. Um, His mother, when she died, did give him some as well. And same thing with Thomas Jefferson. Uh, They never purchased any slaves, but they did use slave labor. But men like John Adams weren't fans of slavery. They didn't think it was right, but they didn't do anything. It was just part of culture, and they didn't really work real hard to abolish the institution. There was talk in putting a slavery prohibition in the Constitution, but there were a couple of problems with this that today we might say, you know, they should have just gone ahead and went with their conscience and did something about it. But we were a very young nation, We had just broken away from Britain. We didn't have a military to really speak of. We had a few boats and and things, but we had a very weak country militarily, economically. Uh, We couldn't afford to have another war so soon after that one. The South, there were already grumblings in the South. They didn't like a lot of the things the North was doing. And there was talk that they wanted to form their own nation. And this was 
way back from the very beginning of our country. They had already had problems with tariffs and other things. And so there wasn't a real large push to end slavery because the South would have revolted and would have broken away and it would have collapsed our entire experiment of self, uh, self-rule. Plus, economically, and again, I'm not, I'm not making a case for slavery, but I'm saying economically, because of slave labor, we were able to make products like clothing and other things very, very cheap because we didn't have to pay for the labor. And so we could undercut other nations when we, when we traded. And this was very important that we, in order to, for us to get on our feet economically and to become a, a world trader, we needed, uh, I, I shouldn't say we needed, um, they supported the slavery uh, for economic reasons. If we got rid of slavery, the South economy would have collapsed, which means the Northern economy would have collapsed. And again, we would have been ripe because we had Spain below us um, in Florida and in what is now the Louisiana. We had the French and you had you know the Canadians above us and we would have been ripe for the picking if we had collapsed uh, for other nations to come in and take us over. So they dragged their feet on the issue of slavery for a long time, not wanting to create waves. And then we tried to halt the extension of slavery. I think they banned the slave trade in, in the 1820s. I believe it was 1825. Um, but it was in the 1820s that we banned the slave trade. So we could no longer bring in new slaves from outside the United States, but you still had people who were born slaves and being traded and sold as they became of age. And uh, so, you know, we did the Compromise of 1850. We, you know, we tried to draw a line saying that we couldn't have slavery above a certain point in the nation, um, like the Mason-Dixon line. We had all kinds of different things. You know, we tried popular sovereignty. So every State could make could vote to decide if they wanted to be a slave state or an anti-slave state, uh, and then in I think it was 1857. It was in the 1850s, the late 1850s, that they had the Dred Scott decision, in which the Supreme Court ruled that that blacks were property; they were not people, and they thought that this would solve the problem once and for all. But it just inflamed the situation, and in 1860, John Brown, an abolitionist, tried to create a slave revolt. He took over a federal armory and uh, hoping that having these these guns, they would be able to hand them to slaves and then they could they could form their own rebellion. And uh, but he took over the federal armory. They had access to all these guns, but they found out afterward that the ammunition was kept somewhere else. So now they had guns, but no ammunition, and they were very easily taken by the troops. Um, But this created, the South became very frightened, even though Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party disavowed that. They said, we don't believe in violence. We don't want to do this. The South was very concerned because the Republicans were abolitionists, and and many in the Republican Party were very... uh, I don't want to say extremists, but they, they wanted, they thought slavery was an aberration. They wanted it ended very quickly. Abraham Lincoln was a little bit more of a moderate on it. But when he won, the South said, we cannot abide by this. And they took the not my president to the next level and said, 
we're leaving the nation if you're going to be president. We're not even going to be a part of this nation anymore if you're not going to support our right to uh, free association and free economy and, and these things. So as you know, the Civil War occurred. But here is where Abraham Lincoln had the trouble, and this is where we get into a lot of the situations that we have today. Abraham Lincoln was, was faced with three problems near the end of the war about what to do with the issue of slavery. One issue that they discussed was the idea of rounding up all the black people, putting them on boats, and sending them back to Africa. Well, this was very cost prohibitive, first of all, uh, to purchase boats and have them sent over there. Number two, to round them all up. And then there was questions, what do you do with them? They've been Americanized. I mean, you know, to just send them to a place where at this point in Africa, they were like savages. They didn't have, uh, many of them lived in tribes. They didn't have a real language. They still use spears and arrows and things. You, you know, do you just drop them off at like, like you would a, an animal, like a, a squirrel or something, and just drop them off in the woods and expect them to acclimate? There was a fear. How do you, how do, you do that? Do you just drop them off anywhere and just hope they'll survive? Uh, do you, and then what about, you know, because they came from all over Africa, do you just drop them off in South Africa, the nearest port that still doesn't take them home? And then you had men, oh, and women too, but like Frederick Douglass, who were very educated. They were former slaves. They had been free. They had gotten an education. They had careers. They were authors. They had businesses. And they said, well, we're Americans. We consider ourselves Americans you can't just round us up and send us to another country that we don't want to go to. I mean, that's just as bad. That's the same as slavery is what they did over there. You just round us up and send us to another continent. You can't, you can't do that to us. So Lincoln struggled with that. The, you know, he had a point there. Do you, then they thought about a colon, a colonization issue. Do you send them? We'll say Florida. This wasn't the case, but as an analogy, round them all up and put them almost like what today we would call like a, an Indian reservation, put them down in Florida and say, this is your land, do whatever you want with it, have your own government, have, you know, whatever, you'll just, you won't be part of the United States, you'll just be your own little country down there. But again, you've got the same problems as, you know, it, especially in the North, forcing them to move down there. And then what do you do with the people who live in those areas? The white people, do you tell them they have to leave? Do you have to purchase all their property? And then, you know, it just became real difficult to figure out what to do with them. Uh, there was also the third idea. Uh, I guess there were four ideas. I said three only earlier. But the third idea was to buy all the slaves and then set them free. But again, it was very cost prohibitive. The United States did not have tons of money at that time. This was back before the United States taxed people and just have tons of money. We didn't have the money to purchase all the slaves. And on top of that, without a constitutional amendment banning the purchase of slaves, there was nothing to stop people from enslaving them and, and uh, you know, and selling them to each other and things. So you really weren't solving the problem. Plus, you're kind of giving credence to the South idea that they were property. If you could just buy them and sell them, it, it kind of became hypocritical for the, for the abolitionists to say they're people, they're not property, but we're going to purchase them as property. So they really were kind of stuck. And what ended up happening, I mean, Lincoln did sign the Emancipation Proclamation, which 
is kind of a misnomer. People think that he freed the slaves. He freed the slaves in areas that we had already conquered. He used the conquered nations theory that we went down and we took parts of land uh, in the south. Um, you know, we won those battles and we took that land. And we said in those areas, because you consider them property, this isn't our interpretation, but you said they're property. Well, we have the right to confiscate property. If you, t- you know, if, if you take prisoners and they have guns, you know, you can take their guns. You can take things and use them for yourself. So he used that analogy and said, if you want to argue their property, then fine, we'll take your property and we're going to free them. So we didn't purchase them. We didn't do that. We just took over your property and set them free. So I didn't really free all the slaves in the United States, just the ones that were in. If you read the Emancipation Proclamation, you'll see that they outline what areas are being freed and what areas aren't. But the 13th Amendment is the one that actually freed the slaves. And this was the problem. Another, I don't know if Lincoln saw it as a problem, but it certainly, it became, it, it, it started the problem that we have today. And that was that when they freed the slaves, you now had these, these former slaves who had no education. Many of them could not read and write. They had no real skills other than like picking cotton or tobacco or, you know, they knew how to plow a little bit and they, you know, and some of them knew how to sew and, you know, to make clothing. A lot of the women knew how to make clothing or um, keep house and things, but they didn't have any real skills like being a cobbler or, you know, a mill worker or, uh, you know, a shoe repairer, I guess it's a cobbler, but any of these things, they didn't have any real skills and they didn't have money saved up in the bank. They didn't have property that they could go to. So suddenly they were freed and now they're homeless. They have no education, no skills. They're just living as squatters now on land. They have to build these little shanties because they, like I said, they have no money. It's not like they can just dip into their bank account or get a hotel or rent a place. They have nothing to do. They have nowhere to go. They can't be hired anywhere because former slave owners are not going to hire the people they once had as slaves now as general laborers and pay them an hourly wage to work for them. And the government had no, we didn't have a system. We couldn't provide them housing. I mean, I mean, today we might say that, well, since, we've, since they are freed, we'll provide them housing. We'll provide them some kind of welfare some kind of food stamps and stuff until they get on their feet. But there wasn't any of those things available at that time. So suddenly, these people are just put out, had nowhere to go, had no education. Like I said, they had, they had no skills. They can't get jobs anywhere. Even if you take away the racism issue, they can't get a job because you're, you're going to hire a white person over a black person who has education, who has some experience. You're not going to hire someone who can't read or write, uh, doesn't have many vocal skills, um, and so when they, when they did create schools, they had blacks teaching other blacks. And so some of these, you know, so some of the schools only had third, fourth grade education. The teachers only had a third or fourth grade education. And now they're trying to teach young black kids. So right from the start, what the government created there was a system of abject poverty. Whereas you do have uh, like the Vanderbilts and the, and the Carnegies and these people where you had old money in white families that were passed down from generation. The Adams were like that. Later on, we see the Kennedys and the Bushes and the Rockefellers and these people. Um, you know, they could afford uh, 
you know, they had money that they sent down. They had property that they could give down to their kids. You had black people who, when they died, they didn't have anything to pass down. You didn't have cars or houses or property or jewels or anything. So the next generation became just as poor as the generation before and just as uneducated and without the skills like in in a lot of the, not just the white communities. I mean, even in minority communities in the North, even with some in black communities or the Irish or Italians, many times you went into the same profession that your father had. So, you know, he would teach you or you learn an apprenticeship, but in the South, they didn't have these opportunities. So, and this is where I think people get mixed up and they talk about systematic racism and stuff and white privilege. It's not really a white privilege. It's just that because of the way things were handled by the government, there really wasn't, I suppose you could say that white people had a bit of an advantage. A lot of white people, not every white person. There was a lot of poor white people who had no advantage, poor Italians, poor, uh, uh, Irish, Irish people. Um, so there was, so it took a long time to, for them to rise up above that. Now, um, there was some racism in the South. We know about the Jim Crow laws and we know about, so, you know, so there was a little bit of oppression in the South, not really in the North, but in the South, there was some oppression that kept them from being able to rise up. But then when we got, you know, then you had like the Plessy versus Ferguson ruling in, I think it was 1898 or something, which made it um, the separate but equal. So saying that if there, we didn't have tax dollars at that time, but if you were spending money uh, on a white, you know, in a community for a white school, you had to also spend money on a black school. You had to, you had to make it equal. If you provide a water fountain for whites only, you have to provide one for black people, uh, a restroom or anything like that. You know, so, you know, in, in some restaurants, they were integrated, but they weren't integrated completely. So you'd have like a black section of a restaurant or a movie theater. So you would still keep them separate, but they were considered somewhat equal as far as they could still go to the same places, but you had to separate them. Uh, And this was, of course, a government, or this was a Supreme Court ruling. And it didn't really help. There's, you know, it it still kept everyone separate from one another and created dividing lines, more of an us against them. And that's where you started seeing in the South a lot of uh, what we later call the Jim Crow, you know, keeping people from voting, uh, creating the poll taxes and other things to keep... Um, black people from being able to vote intimidation and things like this. And so then uh, the Supreme Court ruled again later on uh, in the Brown versus the Board of Education. This was in the 1950s for full integration, and it had to be immediately. This is where I think I, I didn't have a problem. I don't have a problem with integration at all. Let me explain that. What I think the problem was when they forced it immediately They didn't have time to let people acclimate and to create a plan. It's just like today, you're segregated. Tomorrow, white people, you have to allow black kids into your schools. Restaurants have to be integrated. Um, Everything has to be suddenly integrated starting tomorrow. And in the South, there became an explosion of anger uh, because they argued about free association. They should have a right to decide who they want to be with, who they want to be around, Um, and you started seeing the lynchings and the burning of black churches and black homes is they couldn't take out their anger really on the government, uh, but they took it out 
on the black folks that lived nearby. Well, this created more problems. We had to send in, I, I think Eisenhower sent in the military. I don't think it was just the National Guard. I think to integrate the Little Rock schools, but we did send in the National Guard into Mississippi uh, and many of these, you know, to enforce the, the Supreme Court decision, which just inflamed things and really set race relations back more than it helped forward. And like I said, I, I think it would have been a better order to have it phased in over a period of time so that people, so that people weren't forced immediately because even, well, not today, most of them are dead now, but in the 90s, there were still a lot of people who were, uh, would be considered a violent, uh, violent racist. George Wallace was the governor of Mississippi. You had uh, a number of them who, by the 90s, the 80s and 90s, they agreed that they had been wrong, that there was nothing really to fear about integrating the races. But they were just so angry, and it happened so quickly, that, like I said, if it had happened slowly... I think they would have seen that, oh, there's not anything to fear being around a black person or, you know, um, or whatever. It, they, they could have slowly acclimated, but since it was so fast, it created so much animosity between whites and blacks. And so what ended up happening is, like I said, the government keeps coming in and trying to make things right. So then, you know, we talked about the education Again, it wasn't necessarily racism, but if you have a white person and a black person available for the same job and the white person is educated or has experience and the black person isn't, any business is going to hire the white person over the black person, not because they're racist or anything, but just because there's a deficiency in education or experience. So then the government got involved, and I don't know if, if it was a Supreme Court ruling or if it was a, a legislation, but it started pushing uh, for uh, quotas, you know, and affirmative action, saying that now if you are a black student in school, they have to graduate if you want to keep your funding. Now, they have to graduate, because if you're not graduating them, then... Um, you know, you're creating, you're creating that, that problem. You're, you're continuing that problem. So what schools ended up doing is just passing black people, even if they didn't have the education. So you ended up with black people who are graduating and they still can't read or write or they can't add or subtract because you have to graduate them. And the schools ended up focusing more on the white students because they had to earn their grade. And so you have to put more facilities into the white students in order to ensure that they know what they're learning so they can graduate. So they ended up creating the opposite problem or they ended up creating, doing the opposite of what they, what they were intending to do and created a bigger problem. So now you still have kids who are graduating, black students who are graduating. So they have a diploma, but they don't have any skills. They don't have any education. So there again, so now they started saying, well, you have to hire a certain amount of black people, you know, in order so those black kids or those black people can get an edu- er, uh, experience so they can compete with the white students. Well, you know, that ended up not going over real well. I mean, this quota system, and we still have some of those quotas. We don't have them as badly as they used to. Actually, I don't know if we still have the quota system, honestly, in workplace. But, um, 
but you know they they started mink you know interfering in there and then you know you had to have so many black students in college you had to leave seats available for them and and uh, you know they don't have to earn it which again just created problems there because now you have black students who have no education going to college and they have to be retrained and uh, you know it just the thing is the government keeps interfering, trying to make things equal and trying to um, boost up the black man or the black child or the black woman to try and help them succeed. And every time it seems as if they just make things worse. Uh, and, and now because it's a very public, there are a lot of people who understand that that's why, you know, so if a, a black student graduates now there are a lot of people who think, well, yeah, it doesn't mean you're educated because we know that you have to gra- you have to graduate a certain amount of black people. So it doesn't mean anything. So they're still more likely to hire the white person who has an, a, grad- a high school certificate than they are the black person because they know the, high, the white person earned their, their uh, certificate of graduation. So they didn't solve any problem. They just created more many problems out of this and are denying white people into college because they can't have too many white people in that college. And, you know, so now, now you're disenfranchising certain white people because of it. They, you know, it just over and over, they keep meddling, trying to make things right. Uh, doing symbolic gestures. Like, you know, we've gone through so many ways of trying to make black people feel, um, included, you know, they went from being Negroes, to colored people, to then Afro-Americans and then African-Americans. And, you know, and it just, you know, you know, they want everyone to feel comfortable and feel a part of the system. And so, you know, they keep changing these things and trying to make things more inclusive, um, but they're not really helping the situation. Now, it will eventually, over generations, will equal out. Uh, as we start seeing now, there are many black celebrities, many black business owners, many black, uh, you know, rappers, athletes, you know, politicians, and their kids are set. Their kids are going to be able to go to good schools because they have money. Their kids are going to have old money at some point. For example, like when Barack Obama dies, his, his daughters will inherit money from him, property from him. Uh, they'll have things of value, they can get collateral to get loans, they can get, I mean, aside from just their name, you know, so as you start seeing Denzel Washington, Halle Berry, and Jay-Z, and all, you know, and uh, Beyonce, and all these different uh, people, their kids are going to be set, and so as time progresses, you're going to start seeing more black people who are able to move into areas like Beverly Hills, and, you know, and more black doctors, and black lawyers, and People, and so over time, that stigma that we had back in 1865 when they passed the 13th Amendment and they were just in abject poverty will disappear because they'll be able to compete with white people. They'll have experience. They'll have education. But as of right now, we haven't got to that point yet, a lot of it because of government programs. And then speaking of the government programs, this is another major issue that affected the black community, and that is when they started giving welfare. 
it became uh, for women who are on welfare, they get a certain amount of money for every child that they have. And if they have a husband, then they get less money because there's a two income family. So there's an incentive for women to continue to have kids without a husband because economically it is better for them to remain unmarried and to have children. So there is a problem there with the nuclear family. It destroyed the nuclear family. And I, I don't know, uh, in my research, I didn't spend a lot of time on this, so I don't know if that was a, 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 a if there was a husband and wife and children back in the you know early 1900s and things like that before welfare. I don't know if this destroyed it or if it just kept them from becoming a nuclear family. But whatever whatever it was, they no longer have what we would call like a normal family or a nuclear family or a Christian family or whatever. You know, they, they don't have that. And so when you see the breakdown of that, children are raised primarily without their father's influence in their life. So this creates a cycle, obviously. If a boy, especially if a, well, girls too. Let me say this about girls. Um, girls learn their self-worth and how to relate to men from their father and how their father treats their mother. So if a girl is raised in a family where her mother is single and is really just uses, and I hate to just you know make a broad statement here, but just for the sake of conversation, bear with me. But if a girl grows up and sees her mother using um, her sexuality and her body um, to gain things, you know, to gain money or uh, sometimes to gain power influence, you know, with a guy, then that's how she's going to perceive herself, that her self-worth is in her body and what she can provide. And it's, and when she doesn't have a father who's teaching her, you know, how to love herself and how to interact with men, um, they're not, they're, she's not going to grow up properly. Uh, with that self-worth. And if a boy doesn't have a father or any male role model, I mean, you know, there are times even in white families where a boy grows up without a father, but if he doesn't have any men in his life that he can look to and emulate and try to learn from and be taught how to be a man, he looks to other sources. And in, in the case of a lot of the inner cities, they look to gangs where they are a counterfeit family. Uh, the, the male leaders of the gang teach a boy how to be a man. It's a, I want to say perverted, I don't mean like sexually perverted, but it's a perverted way that a man is strong. He carries a gun. He, you know, he's, he doesn't take answers from anybody. You know, he hates the police. He hates, you know, um, you do what you have to do to survive if that means drugs or crime. Um, and this is his influence. And so he grows up and, and the gang takes care of you. If someone attacks a member of the gang, the whole gang retaliates. You know, you must, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. So it becomes this counterfeit family for a boy. He's included there. He feels like a man. He's taught how to be a man. Um, you know, there are certain rituals sometimes in some gangs. Like I, you know, I've never belonged to a gang. I, I know from having listened to former gang members on, in interviews and stuff that in some gangs, there are certain rituals. You might have to break into a building and steal something in order to prove that you're worthy of the, you know, of the, um, 
of the gang and some in some gangs you have to actually kill somebody there has to be blood there has you have to prove it through blood by killing a, a, a rival member of a gang or um you know or just an individual i guess i don't know but murder is a part of it you know and it also bonds you with the gang in the sense that now the gang knows you murdered somebody so they can always hold it over your head you know you don't uh number one we don't have any problem killing so we could easily kill you if you leave the gang or if you try to turn state's evidence and go against us we know you killed somebody so you know you're not going to go to the police you're not going to because we'll rat on you and you're going to go to prison for the rest of your life so you know um so it it, it just it creates this bad bad situation where the boys are growing up without male role models they don't know how to treat women they don't you know their their only hope of getting out of the ghettos is to be a drug dealer, uh, a baller, um, a rapper. Um, they don't have any real role models. And so you have this breakdown and they're trying to grow up on the streets. They're involved in crime. They get involved in drugs because there's a hopelessness. Um, you get kids, again, you know, I don't, I've never known any of these kids personally. But I've seen them in interviews. I've seen them on documentaries and things where you'll get these 12, 13, 14-year-old boys who are, you know, already smoking weed, already in some cases doing cocaine or getting drunk. Um, you know, it's a, it's a rite of passage. It's, you know, and in order uh, to, to pay for these things and, and things, you know, they, they get involved in crime. They don't have jobs in a lot of these inner cities as well. There's not a lot of job opportunities. Uh, I guess I should have mentioned that when I talk about um, getting involved in these gangs. There aren't a lot of job opportunities, so there's nothing for them to do all day. Uh, you know, which is, um, I suppose, if you are extremely liberal, you could say that's the fault of white people. They don't want to have jobs or they don't want to create jobs in these areas. But... There's reasons for that. I mean, you know, if you're in a high crime area, what business wants to open up down there? Number one, what kind of business are you going to get? Most of them, a lot of them don't work anyway. And again, I'm not making just a rude statement or a racist statement. They're not working. So they're not going to come to your establishment and you're not going to bring in white people. White people aren't going to come all the way downtown into the ghetto, into an area known for crime in order to buy a burger or to sit down at a restaurant. So what white person is going to go and invest in that community and, and, and try to create jobs and, and things. Um, in that case, it would be, and, and you do see this in some communities, it would be better for, for black entrepreneurs to form businesses in there because they know the area and they're going to be able to get black people to come to the restaurants and things. It's, it, uh, it, it's just conceivably in this, in this day and age, you're not going to get, white people who are going to go into a predominantly black neighborhood, especially one that's riddled with crime and gangs and, and drugs and open up a business and try to have an establishment there. Um, whether that's right or wrong, um, that's just the reality of it. So it's just a blight in the community. And many times in some of those areas in Chicago and things, police don't even go into that area because it is like a suicide mission in Chicago. I remember it in the, uh, uh, I can't remember the project's name uh, in Chicago, but 
they, they recently tore the whole area down in order to start over. But it was so riddled with crime that when a police officer came into that area, they would be, they would be surrounded and shot at. And there was one in the late 70s, there was a big deal about it because a white person was in the area for some reason, got shot. The police came to this area and then they were all shot. And, you know, and at a certain point they had to send in the National Guard in order to get these uh, white people out, you know, the police and other people out because the area was just so dangerous. And so the police just put out a blanket statement that we will not respond to calls in that area. You know, so once the police have pulled out, that area just went over to anarchy. I mean, they were burning down buildings. It just became a hotbed of prostitution, drugs, gangs, you know. Um, so it just, it slowly um, cycles into a worse and worse situation. Now, like I said, there are no white people in that area. There's no businesses in that area. There's no police in that area. And it it just became such a bad area to go to. In fact, uh, in Chicago, Mayor uh, Jan Byrne, I think her name is, uh, in the 70s, she went down there to prove that the ghettos weren't so bad. Uh, she was the the first uh, female mayor in Chicago. And she was a Democrat. And she, well, of course, I think every mayor of Chicago has been Democrat for a long, long time, uh, probably as far back as any of us know. Anyway, she claimed that white people were just uh, profiling them and that it really wasn't as bad or as dangerous as they said. So she was determined she was going to go down there and um, into the into the projects and show them that, you know, she's not afraid to go down there. And it, I kid you not, it turned into a hostage situation. She was held up into one of the buildings because gang violence was breaking out. There was shooting everywhere. They had to hold her in there, and again, they had to send in the National Guard because the police would not come in there to rescue her because they would be sitting ducks as soon as they came in there. Um, and she was held there for like an hour and a half, not by not by a gang holding her against her will, but she was stuck in there because she couldn't. She was it was too dangerous for them, for her aides to get her out of there for fear that she would be killed. Um, so it just blew up in her face. So I guess in the last 10, 20 years. They just went through it and bulldozed the whole area. Just, you know, they sent in, I think, the National Guard to get everybody out of that area. And then they just went through and bulldozed everything because there was just, there was no point in keeping it up. It just, there was, you know, that was the only thing they could do. Uh, the building should have been condemned anyway. They were all burned out and destroyed. So, again, you can't expect that area to be what they call gentrified. You can't expect white people to start investing in that area, building homes and, and, you know, in a community and, <clears throat> and schools and churches and, and hospitals and businesses. It just wasn't going to happen. It might happen now that they've leveled the whole area. I haven't kept up on it. I'm not really sure what it is now, but, but they have a chance if they just got everyone out of there, leveled the whole thing and started over. But as far as as long as that was a crime-ridden area, you're not going to have that area become, it, it just it just disintegrates into anarchy. And there again, one other point is in the, with the Great Society program, we started building all of these buildings, that's where the project was built, to um, give to black people. And again, 
we gave it to them so that they could have it as a place to live, you know, you know, to kind of right the wrongs of just having them live in shanty houses. We started building these things for them, but two problems. Number one, nobody respects anything that's given to them. So when you just handed over houses and apartments to black people and said, Hey, these are yours. They weren't, they didn't respect them the same way that a person who saved up and bought their first house is going to take care of their house and their lawn. You know, what a person is given, you're not going to have the same respect for that. And I, I know that just from my own experience with my sister and other people that when we were kids and we, they would, we would be given something, it didn't last real long, you know. But if I bought something, oh man, I held onto that because it was precious to me. I, I bought that. Um, it cost me money. I sacrificed. I gave something for this. But if you just gave me a book or something or, you know, a toy, it's like I'd play with it and then I either give it away or it'd get broken or something. So, so, you know, so, and then, then the federal government, they created these things and then they never took care of them. So they started to fall apart after a while. And again, creating the situation. So, Really, there's, and, and, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, and it, there's just so many things, but a, a, definitely the, the family dynamic is what really destroyed the black community. Uh, you know, our history, we did things, our government did things in the past that didn't help blacks at all. It sometimes set them at a disadvantage. Um, but really, with the, with the family dynamic, um, it just it just completely devastated the, the the black community, and we're seeing the seeds of that now. And and if it it will take a while for us to 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 combat these issues, and and where whites and blacks are treated on an equal basis. Now they are tre- equal in the eyes of the law, and they're equal in the eyes of God. But to be equal in wealth and opportunity is going to take a while. And so. Um, I guess that's all I'm going to say about that. I mean, there's a lot more we could talk about and I'd be, I'd love to hear your opinions and your comments. And, you know, I may have been wrong about some of these things. Um, this is just my opinion based on some of the research I've done. So please let me know if you agree or if you don't agree and why you don't agree. Um, and maybe we can keep this conversation going, uh, on Facebook or on the website or anything. So, all right, I'll talk to you soon and have a great day. Bye.